0: Will you turn with me again, please, to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter and chapter 3 in the text for our study this evening is found in uh, verse 18 of that chapter. 1 Peter 3, verse 18. We may read from verse 17, For it is better if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. We're just going to deal with the first half of that verse, down to bringing us to God. So that the subject of our study is again the sufferings of Christ and as you know we've already seen the sufferings of Christ in this letter of Peter you remember that he speaks of Christ's death as the basis and the foundation for holiness in chapter 1 and also how we saw in chapter 2 how the death of Christ Or rather the suffering of Christ is set up for us as an example in the way that we are to patiently endure suffering but here when we come to look at the suffering of Christ in this context it isn't by way of an example that it's set before us because what he is taking us into is the nature of the sufferings of Christ So much so that they are of such uniqueness that they cannot possibly have a parallel in anything in our lives. It is not as an example that he's setting out Christ here for us. It is not as an example to follow in our sufferings. But rather that we may see that there is a connection. He is saying to them, The kind of suffering that you must endure is suffering for well-doing rather than for evil-doing. Suffering when you're doing well and enduring it patiently as we've seen, that is what is acceptable to God. And now he says in that particular sense, and that sense only, there is an affinity with the death of Christ and with the sufferings of Christ because it is suffering as the just one suffering unjustly he is suffering as one who doesn't in himself deserve to suffer and in that way there is a parallel between him and the kind of suffering that is found in his people as they're written to hear by Peter and as we look at this particular text Peter takes us into the nature of into the very heart of the sufferings of the lord into the very heart of the gospel christ has also once suffered for sins the just for the unjust that he might bring us to god there are three things that we want to look at in that particular half of the text there is first of all and all the three of these things are related to his sufferings. They were, first of all, sacrificial sufferings. They were, secondly, vicarious sufferings. And they were, thirdly, redemptive sufferings. We'll try and explain these terms as we go through them one by one. They are, first of all, sacrificial sufferings. He is talking about suffering in terms of being a sacrifice. We find that in these words, for sins. Because they're words that are used in in this particular way in respect to offering up a sacrifice. Offering up something in respect to sins. But you'll notice how he introduces the term Christ. He brings it in abruptly and significantly and tellingly. He says, The Christ also suffered once for sins. He's introducing the whole thing by saying, This is something that is true of the Christ. And of course, we know that that term is the official designation for the Lord, that that is something that teaches us. Of his messianic office that it means the anointed one that it means the one set apart that it means the one that is officially put into the work of mediation we saw in chapter 2 how as the foundation stone he is elect precious he has from eternity been set aside he has been chosen by the godhead as the one that would come in this specific task of being the sacrifice for sins. It is the Christ that has come. It is the Christ that is brought before us, the anointed one, the set apart one. And how much there is of value and of substance in the term the Christ you remember that John makes it a test of truly being a Christian when he is saying in chapter 5 of his first epistle, those who believe that Jesus is the Christ are born of God. He is saying take the historical Jesus, separate him off from the Christ, do what modern theology is doing in our day and you've got no basis for being born again those who take the Jesus of history and say, that is not the Christ of theology. They're separating what God has put together. And he's making a test of being children of God, the fact that we must accept that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the anointed one, that he is moving among men, as we read of him in the Gospels, as the one that is anointed by God into the office of the Messiah and the Mediator. And you know we're living in days, as we mentioned this morning, when it's seen as an offence to publish things that say things against Muhammad. There are calls for the extermination of an author who produced such a book. We're not saying the book is accepted. What we're saying is notice the contrast between the outrage over the abuse of the name Mohammed and the fact that the name of the Christ is trampled day after day and the world doesn't blink an eye at it. It rolls off millions of tongues spat out and cursing. The Christ. The Christ who suffer. The Anointed One. Surely he's more for us than a swear word. Surely he means far more than something that is to be abused. The Christ has suffered once for sins. He's taking the whole of his atoning sufferings together, and he's saying, "He's done it once." He's putting the whole thing together and he's saying, that is what the Christ has done. That is what has happened to the Christ. It's a once for all and unique thing. He has suffered once for sins. Now we're saying that, that word, these words for sins mean it's a sacrificial suffering. What we mean by that is firstly that he answers to and fulfills all the sacrifices of the Old Testament system all the ritual of the Old Testament way of worship and approach to God, Christ is the fulfillment of all these and all their details. Whatever one of these sacrifices we take, He fulfills it. The sin offering, the burnt offering, the scapegoat offering, the offering of the Day of Atonement, the Passover Lamb. All of these find their fulfillment in Him and to the very last detail, even to being without spot and without blemish. But then there's something else. We have to make sure that we have things the right way round. What is the relation of the sacrifice of Calvary to the sacrifices of the Old Testament? And the relation is this, that the sacrifice of Christ is the real sacrifice, the real sacrifice of substance, the archetype, if you like, the complete and the sacrifice of sacrifices. It isn't that Calvary is based upon what we find in the Old Testament. It's that what was in the Old Testament is based upon what is happening in the case of Christ. He is the foundation. His sacrifice is the sacrifice. And every other sacrifice is a shadow of the substance. It's a sacrificial, the sacrificial suffering. But then cast your minds back to the Old Testament shadows and the types. And cast your mind back to the details. And cast your mind back to the awesomeness of the details where you see the commandments of God in so ordering the details of all these sacrifices in their minuteness and think of all the commandments that bound the sacrificial system and think of all the penalties that are laid against transgressing in any detail And it's an awesome thing when we think of it, when we read through it, when it had to be so exact. You remember that the sons of Aaron were punished by death, by not keeping to the letter the command of God. And that applies to the sacrifice of Christ look at Calvary and look at all that is happening in Christ's suffering sacrificially who has arranged the details who has arranged the moment who has arranged the place who has arranged the circumstances who has arranged the person who has arranged the nature of the sufferings who has spelt out all the details of calvary it is the lord this is the doing of the lord and it's wondrous in our eyes to the very most exact detail it is the work of god everything that happens in the sacrifice of christ is the work of god the god arranged sacrificial suffering isn't that what Peter, this writer, is saying in his sermon in, in the book of Acts? Where after Pentecost he's preaching on, on, in witnessing to Jesus in his death and resurrection, and he says to those that are listening to him, this Jesus of Nazareth, this historical person, this man accepted by God, who in the determined counsel and for knowledge of god you took him and by wicked hands you crucified him pilate gave the orders he was instigated by the people they arranged the time they arranged the place they set up the cross they nailed him to it they lifted it up they had all these things ordered as far as they were capable of but there's another one who's looking in there is another one who has ordered their ordering there is another mind behind calvary it is the mind of the lord himself he has done it and it is sacrificially arranged by god the awesomeness of Calvary's details and nothing is out of place. It is a sacrificial suffering. He is suffering as the Lamb of God who is taking away the sin of the world. Christ, he says, the Christ, the Anointed One. Has once also suffered for sins but then you see he says it's not just sacrificial suffering it's also vicarious suffering and it's taking us a little deeper into the subject because he's going on to speak about the just or the unjust it is something that is related to those that he is dying for There is a specific relation between the one who is suffering and those for whom he is suffering and that specific relation is brought out by being the just or the unjust when we use the word vicarious it's a word which contains within itself that specific relationship Of christ in his suffering to his people that he saves and there are three things that we must always remember within this vicariousness and these three things make up the meaning of the word vicarious and the three things are identification representation and substitution And we must never hold to one or to two of them and neglect the other the three of them stand or fall together identification he is with his people representation he is on behalf of his people and substitution he is instead of his people His identification is seen in His coming, in His incarnation, in His entering into their situation, in His being the Savior who has gone into all the experiences of those that He is going to save. He has come and He's taken their nature. He has taken the utmost humiliation to Himself in that. He is fully identified with them. He is also representative to them he acts on their behalf he goes through all the work of his atonement for them as their representative acting for them on their behalf he is there representing them he represents them also in his advocacy in his intercession for them in the heavenly sanctuary He is there as the represented. He is with them. He is for them. But he is also instead of them. And that is the one that really so many people stumble over. Because many theologians will accept today the identification and the representation, but not the substitution. Because the substitution goes further than the other two. Because the substitution involves his being punished in the place of his people. The substitution means that he is taken and that he is placed where they should be. And that he suffers what they deserve to suffer as the just one. Now if you think of it for a moment, in terms of sacrifice, a sacrifice can never be a representative thing the sacrifices in the old testament were not representative things they were substitutionary things it is a sacrifice in the burnt offering for example that is burnt up it is consumed it is an entire holocaust it is something that is given in the place of those that are offering it and it is given with that specific design that God accepts it in the place of them. We cannot think of sacrifice as represented. It is a substitutionary thing, it is a sacrifice instead of someone else. And that equally applies to the suffering and to the death of Christ it is a sacrifice that is vicarious including substitution. He is indeed instead of his people as well as on their behalf and with them and as a sacrifice he gives himself as a sacrifice he's given by the Father. As a sacrifice he's consumed on the altar. As a sacrifice he is entirely given for them. And he's given for them and he is consumed for them in their stead, in their place, instead of them. The just for the unjust. The just one in the place of the unjust. Then we might ask, What then lies at the center of the substitution? Why is it that the Lord in his sufferings suffers in the way that he does? Why does he experience the kind of death that he does? Why does he experience being forsaken by God? Why does he truly bear in himself the agonies of an endless hell? what we have to say in respect to that is contained in the word imputation and imputation means that he is there in his sufferings with the sins of others upon him. His sufferings are not due to his own sins, he has none, he is the just one god has made him to be sin who knew no sin it is sin that is imputed to him. as long ago as isaiah it was brought out in the suffering servant the lord has laid on him the iniquities of us all with this chastisement our peace is secured the chastisement of our peace The sufferings of the Lamb of God are the sufferings of one to whom God himself has imputed the sins of his people. That is the reason that he suffers in the way he does. That is what is meant within the phrase, the just for the unjust, for the sufferings that are contained in that description. For the limitless and the unfathomable sufferings of the Lord on the cross and in bearing the sins of his people. It is an imputed sin. It is a suffering in respect to the imputation of such suffering. And that is what is at the very heart of vicarious sufferings. The vicariousness that is with us, that is for us, that is instead of us. He has our sins. Imputed. that really is the problem if there is no substitution isn't it because if we deny substitution and imputation we're left with a question and it's not just a question it's a dilemma what is happening to us what has happened to our sins if they're not imputed to the Lord if the wrath of God is not endured by him as the one who endures these things imputed to him, what has happened to our sins? Well, what has happened to them is that they're still on our shoulders. As Luther put it, except our sins become Christ's own sins, we perish. Eternally, if there is no imputation our sins are still on us and we can say just as surely of the doctrine of substitution as we can of the doctrine of the resurrection if Christ be not risen you are yet in your sins if Christ be not a substitute you are yet in your sins There is no such thing as a representation only that will remove sins. Sin has to be visited with the wrath of God. And the answer to it is found in the substitute. I have found our answer. The just or the unjust. We have to go one step further. We're saying that the substitution justifies the representation and the identification. He acts on their behalf and he acts as their representative because he is their substitute. He is justified in acting in that way because of the imputation that has taken place. But the question. And the stumbling block to many is what will justify the substitution. Can you see what we mean? If we're saying that his acting on their behalf and his suffering like that is justified by being the substitute of his being, What is it that justifies his being made the substitute? In other words, if we can put it so bluntly, how can it be right for God to make the just suffer as the substitute of the unjust? And that takes us into the very foundation of the whole salvation of God, the eternal covenant between the Father and the Son. Something, the details of which are hidden from us in the wisdom of God. It is something that has existed in the mind of God from all eternity. And you remember how the Lord himself, especially as we find it, the gospel according to John brings that out for us. For example, in that great prayer in in chapter 17, where the Lord praying to the Father says, O righteous Father, Thine they were, and thou gavest them to me. They are committed into the keeping of the eternal son. And he says in the same prayer, I have kept them. In thy name I have lost none of those that thou hast given me. The son of perdition is lost, but he was never in their number." It is within that, that the answer to the whole dilemma lies why has God made his own son the substitute? Why has he made the just to suffer for the unjust? Because in his wisdom he covenanted from eternity in that particular way to save his people. The answer lies in the mystery of the divine mind. The just or the unjust suffering for sins. But let us never overlook the fact that he well and truly died. That the sufferings were the sufferings of death and that the death was no less than the death. That is the wages of sin. The suffering of being in the land that is not inhabited. Where God himself has hidden his face from him. Where in his hanging and his loneliness on the cross. He is enduring a suffering that is an endless eternity of suffering. That he is swallowing up in his own soul. As frenzy he died. He died the death of the unjust and he died it enduringly and there is the mystery of Calvary the awesome mystery of the cross that it is the just one who is looked at as a curse that it is the just one who is made sin that it is the just one who is visited with the wrath of God that it is the just one who is regarded as being unjust and yet he remains the just one who can know of what happened at Calvary? sacrificial suffering vicarious suffering and finally it is redemptive suffering For Christ also has once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. It is with a specific purpose that these sufferings are endured, that he might bring us, he says, to God. You remember that we saw recently from Hebrews 10, how when Christ pours out his blood, When he offers himself as a sacrifice, even in himself he's bringing his people to God. Atonement, as we saw, is made in heaven. Its historical dimensions are at Calvary, in the place that is geographically located in this world on this earth. But the place of atonement, the transaction of atonement, the working of atonement is in the sanctuary of heaven, It is there between the Son of God and the Father. And in the blood, his own blood, that he brings into the holy place, he presents his people. He says, Behold, I am the children God has given. He brings them near to God. But then our nearness and being brought near must include more than that because it includes the fact of being brought near in our experience it includes in his atonement all that is necessary to bring us to god personally and individually and really and actually and in experience in repentance in faith in holiness in trust in all these things and sanctification that is being brought near to God and that is the design of the sufferings of the Lord. He died that he might bring us to God. Now we spoke of imputation. The imputation of our sins to him. And when we're speaking about being brought near to God we also have to speak of imputation. Imputation. Or rather of counter imputation because when we're coming near to God or brought near in him we have his righteousness imputed to us and the imputation and the counter imputation are complete and entire on both sides our sins are imputed to him entirely and completely the imputation is complete the guilt and the suffering and the punishment and all that is entailed in the imputing of sins has been imputed to him it's a complete imputation and it's equally complete on our side his righteousness and all that that means of the favor of God of acceptance with God, of being acceptable to God, of being found in God's presence, and being able to stand there acquitted, His righteousness—all that His righteousness is—it's imputed to those that are brought me. It's a righteousness that must be in keeping with the righteousness of god when god wants us to stand in his presence we cannot stand in his presence except in our righteousness that conforms to the righteousness of god and the righteousness of god requires that he himself requires such righteousness of us god cannot go against his own nature and the answer to that dilemma is an imputation the righteousness of christ imputed to his people Do you remember how the catechism puts it speaking on the question of justification justification is an act of god's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Christ has once suffered sacrificially for sins, vicariously the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God remember how in one dynamic verse Paul writing to the Corinthians puts the whole matter for us. A verse that is limitless in its extent. We read it together in 2nd Corinthians five twenty-one: For he has made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Why? That we might be made The righteousness of God in him. It's on that basis that Paul is basing his whole preached message. We, he says, in Christ's stead, as ambassadors for Christ, beseech you, be ye reconciled to God. And what basis Does the message of reconciliation go out? On what basis has it been committed to the ambassadors of Christ? On the basis of Christ's suffering? For, he says, he has made him to be sin. The reconciliation has been completed. It is now in existence. It has been procured by the just suffering for the unjust. We beseech you, be reconciled to God. By faith appropriated to yourself. Have that righteousness and that position of being justified. Have it by faith. By the faith that builds upon the reconciliation effected in Christ. Now we might close our thoughts by asking who are these people or rather how are they actually seen how do they demonstrate that they are the people that are spoken about that he might bring us to God who is he speaking about well he's speaking about those who have shown that that is what belongs to them especially in the very fact of their coming to christ it must never remain a theory of the atonement it must never remain a theological fact in our minds it must be worked out in our experience and in our individual and in our personal lives that when we come to christ that and that primarily is what demonstrates that we have been brought to god that we have been within the atoning benefits of the eternal covenant and we can never say if we have not come to Christ that any of these benefits are ours all that we have said hasn't removed a single element from personal responsibility in fact it enhances and you remember how the lord himself in john chapter 6 Again, with one dynamic verse, puts the thing for us, both sides of the issue. John 36, verse 37. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that comes to me, I will in no wise, I will never, never, never cast out. Have you ever gone to him and found that he cast you out? Have you ever knocked at his door and known his refusal? Have you ever tried to come to him as your savior? Have you ever truly come to his feet in submission and found that he didn't want to know? No, I will in no wise. Because on for I came down from heaven not to do mine own will but the will of him that sent me and this is the Father's will who has sent me that of all that he has given me I should lose nothing but should raise it up again at the last day and this is the will of him that sent me that everyone who sees the Son and believes on him may have everlasting life and I will raise him up at the last day your reaction is not going to be that of the Jews is it because they said is this not Jesus the son of Joseph whose father and mother we know they are confined to a mere human perspective that is not your reaction is it he means more to you than that does it oh surely he does because he is the Christ, the Christ who once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us, us wretched creatures, to the holy God. O Lord, our gracious God, we pray thy forgiveness for our misuse of all thy gift, and for all, O Lord, that we so mishandle concerning the gift especially of thine own Son, and the gift of eternal life in him. We bless thee that thou dost offer him yet to a sinful world that thou, O Lord, hast laid him before us again this evening as the only name that is given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved. And grant that thou truly draw us by thy spirit to send forth, O Lord, the might of thy right arm that we might see thee in thy sufferings as the one who suffered for us that we might be able to say in a personal way, as thy servant Paul was able to say of himself, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross, by which this world is crucified to me, and I unto the world. May we, O Lord, know of that experience, of this world being crucified to us, May we truly, personally, each one of us, be enabled then to know from in Christ the glories of being new creatures, to see no man thereafter, after the flesh, but rather through the eyes of those that are born again. Grant us these great mercies, and seal thy truth to our hearts, we pray thee, And send us forth into thy vineyard, as those who would labor in thy cause. Hear us and accept us, for the great and glorious name of thy Son. And thou will be glorified in him, now and always. Amen. Our final singing is from Psalm 77. Psalm 77. And the tuneless Tiverton will sing... Verses 12 to 15. I also will of all thy works my meditation make, and of thy doings to discourse great pleasure I will take. O God, thy way most holy is within thy sanctuary, and what God is so great in power as is our God most high. These four verses to God's praise. <laughs> Are you so well, Lord?